Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Again, Westside, we are glad that you're here. Um, we are continuing just in a mini-series, I don't, I don't really know what to call it, I'm entitled Grief and Glory. And so if it is your first time here, and just to sort of catch you up, or maybe if you haven't been in a while, um, this community and this congregation uh, was forever changed by a 21-year-old young man's life. Uh, JT Jonathan Thurman was our youth director, and just an incredibly gifted young man of God who had a great aspiration um, to preach and to love youth and to lead the next generation. JT preached um, his first sermon here a few weeks ago, which is now creeping up on about 13,000 views um, on our social media, which is incredible. And then our congregation and this community and his family just experienced just the very definition of tragedy as JT went to be with Jesus in a tragic motorcycle accident. And our congregation has just been in pause. We've just almost been numb, and we've just been stumbling around in a dark room, if you will, trying to find the light switch. But we do believe um, that God is doing something. And though the grief is very strong, we hold to our faith that we know that God is doing something. Um, through JT's celebration of life, over a thousand people came out, countless testimonies. God is doing something in our congregation and in our hearts. And so we just stopped everything, and we've just focused on these two words, grief and glory. Grief is what fills our hearts, and glory is what fills JT's mind and heart now as he is with Jesus. And, and just as a bit of review as to how we've guided ourselves through this process, we've said that, that we have hearts full of grief, but we do have a hope full of glory. And, and as the weeks sort of pass by, there's so many emotions and roller coaster of emotions, but I think that word hope and glory is starting to drop closer and closer into our hearts. 
Um, grief has a strange way, as Pastor Timothy Keller says, of, of making the promises of God very flat. Meaning, you know that they're true in your mind. But the grief is so heavy that, that in time, it doesn't seem real. And so we said that's what our hearts are filled with. But we also said, as we piggybacked on what JT taught us, that during this time of trial and tragedy, that we found Jesus is still faithful. Jesus is still faithful. That's why Bible verses are so important, like he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't just memorize that so we get a star by our name at kids' side. Our life depends on these verses. Our life depends on what we know of our never-changing God. And we defined hope. We needed to work with a definition. And we said that hope is the confident assurance that what God has said will happen. That's what hope is. Hope is not a Hallmark card. Hope is not an ethereal concept. Hope is not a word that we just toss around. Hope is the confident assurance that what God has said will happen. That's what hope is. And the beautiful thing is, is to make it even more extreme, even to show you how much more one-sided this thing is. A lot of times when we think hope, we think, boy, I better pull up my bootstraps. I better grip it tighter because I have the confident assurance that what God has said will happen. I got to hold on. But the reality is this. We hope in the fact and know that God is holding on to us. <laughs> That's what hope is. That's how extreme this Christianity is. Christianity is not about our grip on God, but it's about God's grip on us in Christ. And, and today, maybe just by way of illustration, there's a story that comes out of World War II, the Great War. And it's told of the Jewish Nazi, uh, the Nazi concentration camp, um, Dachau. And, and the story is told, um, a picture of the concentration camps. This is actually the day of liberation, which is why they're waving their hats. But if you know anything about world history and the tragedy of this event, there's a story that's told of two Jewish men. As their town was plundered, and held captive by the Nazis, two men received information right before they got on the train. Their town was captured. They were both captured, but they received two different messages. One man was given the news that his family had escaped and that they had, to the best of his knowledge, gotten away at that time as he boarded those rail cars that were just packed full. And these people were literally transported to their death. The second man received the opposite information, that his family had not made it out in time and that they boarded another train. And as you can imagine, this man, upon receiving this news, broke down into tears and the story is told that the first man lived his life every single day in the concentration camps up to the day of liberation. That he made it and walked out of the gates of Dachau, which is an astronomical percentage that someone would do that. 
But the story is told of the second man that day in and day out, he lied in the floor of the bunkhouse when he literally wasted away and died. And the story was told that this man literally died of grief and sadness of knowing what had happened to his family. Now, the reason why that story is told is because both of these men experienced the exact same circumstance. Their towns were both captured. They were both captured. They were boarded the same train, and they went to the same concentration camp. Their circumstance was the same, but their outcome was completely different. Why? Why? And as the author would go on to say, because of their future. Or to put it this way, because of hope. One man lived every day with the real hope that he could see his family. The other man lost hope in the fact that his family was captured. Same circumstance, same situation, entirely different outcomes because of a projected future. I love what author Timothy Keller says. Human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. Now listen to me. When it comes to the New Testament, we see these phrases and these hints whenever we're reading our Bible. Once we get out of the Gospels, get out of Acts and the history of the church, and then we get into the epistles, letters written to real Christians in real places, going through real things, we see these phrases pop up like the blessed hope. Or to continue to persevere and to not give up because of the hope that is stored for us. Or the Apostle Paul say in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on heavenly things, on the things that are above. And I would say this, that, that the blessed hope that the Bible speaks of and almost unanimously understood by scholars is that when those authors wrote those phrases to Christians, that the great hope for the New Testament Christians was always the return of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ would return one day and make every wrong right. And that while he was gone... That he was, as he said in the Gospel of John, preparing a place for his people. That the blessed hope for the New Testament Christians was the return of Jesus and the hope of heaven. Now, when you get to the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, oh my, there is much speculation 
There have been crazy movies and left behind. And if you were a Christian kid growing up and you walked in your house and said, hey, mom, dad, and no one was in the house, you thought the rapture had happened and you were left behind. And, and this book for somehow in some way has actually instilled fear and confusion and trepidation into Christians. And I would say, which is the exact opposite of the reason in which it was written. Because you see, there's this little verse in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 that gives us all the insight. John, the great apostle, who by the way was boiled alive under the Roman emperor in order to reject Christ and he didn't die when he was boiled alive. So they tried to beat him to death and he still didn't die. So they were kind of superstitious like is this guy a crash test dummy or what is going on? So they just banished him to the island of Patmos. Imagine, scarred, broken bones, and there on the island of Patmos, he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ that he records and writes to the seven churches that are in Asia. And, and we see in the first three chapters, he addresses these churches. But, but listen, this verse is a key to the entire book of Revelation. Because this is written to real people living in real places in Smyrna, in Ephesus, in, in Philadelphia, in all of these places, listen, who are undergoing intense, massive suffering and persecution. They were under, some scholars believe, depending upon what you believe the date was written, the emperor Nero, who was a wicked bad man. And Nero, literally, here's an artist rendering. Nero used to light Christians on fire in his garden and take an evening stroll. Nero persecuted and literally tried to blot out Christianity from the Roman map. When John is writing to these Christians, what history records is they would gather on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, just like we are, because Jesus rose from death on Sunday. It's a good spot for an amen. And so they would gather on Sunday to remember the resurrection and to read Jesus' words. But if an apostle had written a letter they would read it out loud. And many of them didn't know if it would be the last time that they would see the people that they were gathered with. Then history records the houses were kicked in. Men, women, and children were dragged off. They literally were fed to lions in the Colosseum. They were used as entertainment and game for the Roman government. How in the world did Christianity survive? How in the world did they face every single day? How did they face their current suffering? One author put it this way. This is an incontrovertible fact that the book of Revelation was actually written for comfort 
for the New Testament Christians. The comfort in the book of Revelation worked. The people who received the book of Revelation walked into lion's dens singing hymns. We know this. They were thrown in jail and worshipped and sang. They went to the stake and were burned alive for their faith while they quoted the Lord's Prayer. All because of a living hope from a living God came to them and said this, Look and see what I have in store for you. Look and see what your future is. Look and see what's coming for you. You see, the first Christians got a hold of this and they were able to face anything. That's why the book of Revelation was written and that's why we have a description of the new heavens and the new earth. And when I thought about what our congregation needs and what we need, what this hope is, how do we remain faithful in such a time like this with such heavy questions? Well, if there's one sentence, and if I'm trying to tell you anything today, it's very simply this, that we remain faithful in our suffering when we are reminded of our future. Listen to me that we can remain faithful in insurmountable suffering when we are reminded of what God has in store for his people. One theologian was often uh, uh, quoted as saying, do you see how beautiful the earth is now? And sunsets and sunrises and mountain ranges and rivers and oceans. Do you see how beautiful God's creation is now? And think, God gave this even to evil people who don't love him. Can you imagine what he's creating for his children who love him? Oh, when you start thinking like that, and when you start understanding Bible verses like that, that is what heaven becomes. Get away with me with your Hallmark paintings and heaven and fluffy clouds and babies in diapers and all of these types of things. That is not the biblical concept of heaven. This is the biblical concept of heaven. And it is a hope that we have And the early Christians understood this fact. That heaven is our home. You know this is not home. Listen, don't miss this. You know that you're not supposed to be comfortable here. But yet we toil and we strive and we stress And we're anxious because we're trying to grasp a comfort that was never promised to us here. I'm always reminded anytime that I travel 
and go and speak somewhere or if our family's on the road and you're staying in hotels. And listen, man, when you're a family of five, you don't just pick up and get in the car and go travel on the road, okay? Any trip looks like you're literally moving. Like, where are you moving to? Nowhere. We're just spending the night somewhere else. You know what I mean? But anytime you're there and you're in a hotel or this, and it's just, you try to make it like home. You get your shower stuff set up. Does anybody else have weird routines whenever they travel? Oh, just me? Okay, we got one, two. Okay, great. And, and what you're doing is you're trying to make it comfortable. You're trying, and it just never, you wake up multiple times in the middle of the night. You're disoriented. You're like, where am I? Do I still have my kit? Are we here? What's going on? Because it's never quite comfortable. Listen. That's the way our Christian life is supposed to be here. We're never supposed to reach that full satisfaction. The Apostle Paul would go on to say it so blatantly in Philippians chapter 3, talking about the world with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Please listen to me. Yes, I am grateful to be born in the time and place that we are born in 2022, partially because I don't think I could have made it in the wild, wild west, okay? Right? I just, well, I'm not tough enough back then. I'm grateful for the time in which I was born. I am grateful for this nation that family and friends and my granddaddy being served and spilled his blood for this nation. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But please listen to me. Our ultimate allegiance is not to a flag or to a donkey or to an elephant. Our ultimate allegiance is to a lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the world. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus because our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things unto himself. Listen, I believe that, that, that the writers of the Bible are trying to tell us something. And I believe that first century Christianity survived because they understood this. That they could remain faithful in suffering because they knew what future lied before them. And so today, I just want to spend some time encouraging us what our future is in this immense time of suffering. And, and when I say the word heaven, it's, it's a little bit confusing. And, and listen, I would recommend you can go to our website. We did an entire series entitled Memento More, which means remember your death. It was a real uplifting series, okay? And what we did is we talked about the afterlife. We answered questions. What happens to you when you die? And, and one of the things that we learned is, is the Bible uses the word heaven in a number of ways. Okay, number one, it, it, it's used to describe like the sky where the birds fly, like the heavens. And then it's used to describe like the universe, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above his handiwork. And then the third heaven, which is where God dwells, God's home. And now, when we die now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When Jesus was on the cross dying, he turned to one of the thieves and said, 
On this day, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. It is in the presence of Jesus that our loved ones immediately, when they pass from this life, go to be with Jesus. But in Revelation 21, this heaven is the final heaven. It is the end of time, if you will. Jesus has come back. The clouds have split open. We were just hiking with our kids um, last week. And we talked about the return of Jesus. And, and Roman just asked a question. And he said, what's it going to be like when Jesus returns? And I had him look up at the sky. And I said, you see that sky? It's going to split open. And Jesus is going to come with chariots. And there's going to be a loud trumpet. And Jesus is going to be big enough that in that moment, everybody on earth at the same time is going to get to see him. And he said, man, that's cool, right? That's what's going to happen. And Jesus, it says, is going to bring heaven to earth. And so listen, right now, if you're experiencing the suffering and the grief that I believe our congregation is going through, or you're experiencing your own suffering, your own heartache, your own trial, I believe that God has hope for us today. Really quickly, the first thing that I see about heaven is this, the newness of heaven. The newness of heaven. Did you pick it up there in the verses? Look at how many times in verses 1 and 2 the word new is used. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Listen, just in two verses, new is used three times, or three times, it's used four times in the entire passage. But here's what's interesting. The word new is a really important word. It doesn't mean like never before seen type of new. It doesn't mean like this never existed and then bing, it's new and now it exists. What it means is a complete transformation of what is. Do you see it says that the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And what he's doing is he's preparing and transforming. We get glimpses of this in the here and now. That's actually why Jesus did the miracles. Did you know, as C.S. Lewis said, when Jesus did miracles, he did not supersede reality. A miracle is reality. That's the way that it's supposed to be. The sickness and the suffering was never a part of God's plan. But when Jesus tells the leper to stretch out his hand and he heals the hand, what Jesus is saying is this is what the kingdom of God is like. That it's a total transformation of all of these things. And this is what God is doing for us. But notice something. This is the end of the story. This is revelation. This is it. You only have those maps after this page in your Bible, right? But I want you to notice something. The Bible doesn't end with an ending. The Bible ends with a new beginning. The Bible doesn't end the end. It doesn't end that way. 
The Bible ends with a new beginning, that it's going back to Genesis, back in the way in which it was supposed to be. I love what Eugene Peterson says. St. John's final vision of heaven is not an ending, as we might expect, but a fresh beginning. The biblical story began quite logically with the beginning, but now it draws to an end, not quite so logically, with the beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. That is a fire sentence. And I'm going to reread it again because you didn't even understand that. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. This is what God is doing. The heavens and the earth in Genesis... And then in Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. The story has creation for its first word. And it has creation as its last word. Maybe the end is where we actually begin. What's the application to your life? What if it's actually at the end of yourself, you actually find yourself? Jesus becomes all you need when Jesus is all you have. And I fear that we walk through this life and Jesus is an accessory rather than a necessity. It's the newness of the creation. And then the second thing that I see is this. It's the nearness of God in heaven. It's not just the newness, but it's the nearness of God in heaven. Look at the word with. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It's constantly with, with, with. That God wants to be with his people. But there is something so extraordinary about the nearness of God in heaven. It says that there's no sun because God's glory is going to light heaven. That there is no separation. Do you know what this is going back to again? Remember, it's not an ending. It's a beginning. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 when God had made everything and his relationship with man was perfect. And it says, and God stepped back and saw all that he had made. And it was very good. That's what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be very good because the closeness of God, that, that there's no separation. Um, one time when, when Roman was a little bitty guy, we, we took them to Chuck E. Cheese. And because, you know, parents want a real relaxing time. So you take them to Chuck E. Cheese, right? And they, they were doing their band. The little Chuck E. Cheese band was kind of doing their thing. And, and they were all up there on stage. And some of them were like the animatronic, like robots and stuff like that. Then there was a moment. There was a moment when Chuck E. Cheese, the main character guy, stepped off the stage. And let me tell you something. Roman was into it. It was fun. It was great. I want to stand up. I want to see. And when that joker got off that stage, it was game over, man. Whoa, this is way too close. I cannot. What is happening here? All of that. Listen to me. 
heaven is when God gets off the stage. I'm talking that close. I'm talking the nearness. And listen, this is what is so important in the life of Christ. That we see that God literally stepped out of heaven to be with us. That Jesus, surrounded by glory from before time, angels singing, holy, holy. We just sang it. We just read those scriptures. All of that. And Jesus left that behind to put on human flesh to chase you down. Please listen to me. If you have ever wondered, and if you've ever thought, does God care? God literally moved heaven and earth to get to you. And one day, he's going to bring heaven to us. He's going to bring it to us. Look over in the next page, Revelation 22, verse 4. I want you to see this little phrase that I underlined in my Bible. They will see his face. They will see his face. Last night when I prayed with Roman right before I shut the door, he said, hey, Dad, what are our bodies going to be like in heaven? I was like, what? Whoa. I just, time to go to bed, you know? So I opened the door and I sat on the edge of his bed and I said, well, you know, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be incredible. It's like Jesus' resurrected body. And Romans said, so that's what JT's like right now. I said, yeah, bub, he is. And then Romans said this, JT can see him, can he? And I said, yes, he can. Yes, he can. But please listen to me. That promise is just as real for you and I. Hope is the confident assurance that what God has said will happen. It will happen. And the last thing that I see is this, is the absence of suffering in heaven. The absence of suffering. Verse 4 should be underlined in every single Bible. If it's not right now, you need to underline it in your neighbor's Bible. It's okay, right? Look at what he says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, we always talk about what's going to be in heaven. We never focus on what's not in heaven. Here's, here's what's not in heaven. No death, no sorrow, no pain, no crying. It's gone. It's ultimate satisfaction. This is a picture of the pastor Richard Baxter, who was a preacher and a theologian in the 1600s. He was a great theologian, but he was a good pastor. Richard Baxter suffered greatly in his life with tons of health issues. And when he was 30 years of age, he thought he was dying. He laid on his bed for two weeks and was knocking on death's door. And what he did during that time is the congregants would come to his house and read the Bible, but specifically the portions about heaven. 
And then, miraculously, God gave him many more years and healed him of his ailment. And when he was healed, he made a promise with himself that every single day, for 30 minutes, as soon as he would wake up, he would pause and meditate on the glories of heaven. Every single day for 30 minutes without fail. And he said that it was the only way that he could get through the pain and the suffering that he dealt with in his life. What if, what if this week, what if this week, just 10 minutes a piece on each point, you just pause, first thing that you do. No Facebook, no any of that stuff, just, t- just 30 minutes of just pondering on the beauty of what heaven is and what it's going to be. Here's the sentence. Instead of, instead of focusing on what you're going through, begin to focus on what you're going to. It's the hope of the early Christians. And it's the hope of the New Testament. As the band comes and leads us in a time of response, I want you to notice something. Look at verse 6. Don't close your Bible. Keep it open. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So who gets in? Who gets into this place? Is it, is it people who just don't do verse 7? Oh, man. We love, or, uh, or verse 8, I'm sorry. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the, and so what are we supposed, all, our whole life we're just not supposed to do those things. I'm just not going to do those things. And if I don't do those things, then maybe, maybe I'll quote unquote get into heaven someday. Heaven is not for people who just avoid verse 8. What a, what a poor life that is. Defined by what you don't do. And when you focus on what you don't want to do, how inevitable it is, that's what you do. But who's it for? Well, look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from them the spring of water and life without payment. Here it is, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Two qualifications. Thirsty, what does that mean? Needy. You're needy. You need something. You can't do it on your own. You're lacking. And so you come to God for the need. And then when God has fulfilled that need, you persevere and you conquer and you don't give up and you wake up every day and you read the Bible and you pray and you check on those friends and you do those things. Please listen to me. Heaven is not a place for people who are afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for people who love Jesus. It's all about loving Jesus. That's what it's about. I close with this. This is a picture of the famous hymn writer, Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby has been uh, recorded in history as writing some 3,000 hymns. Many of them you know. 
Many people don't know Fanny Crosby was blind her entire life. Well, not really her entire life. When she was born, a few months after she was born, she developed an eye disease. Her family was very poor and they couldn't afford a regular doctor. And some charlatan was passing through town and said that he could help the baby. And he mixed this concoction with mustard seeds and this, that, and the other and placed it on little Fanny's eyes when she was a little baby. History records in her autobiography that her mother said she had never heard a small child scream so profusely in her whole life. And the doctor kept saying, leave it on her eyes. Leave it on her eyes. It's burning out the disease. Well, wrong. It burned out her retinas. And Fanny was blind. She had many complications with health through the rest of her life. And she was always interviewed. And they would say, how can you keep going? Such horrible suffering has happened to you in your life literally unto the day that she died. And as a matter of fact, this is her headstone. And on the headstone it reads this, in grateful and loving memory of Fanny Crosby, who inspired and edified Christians all over the world by writing some more than 3,000 hymns and poems where she was born. And then Fanny's personal favorite hymn, that she ever wrote. Anytime she was interviewed and they said, how do you do it? How do you make it day in and day out? She would say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of heaven divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of the spirit and washed in his blood. We can face our suffering and remain faithful in our suffering when we're reminded of our future. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to partake in communion. But listen, I would just ask today, as we go to the Lord right now, every head bowed and every eye closed, with the assurance and the goodness of Jesus Christ, knowing the only qualifications are to be broken and needy. I think we all qualify in the room today. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe you've never understood that. Maybe you've never admitted that you're needy. Maybe you have fought God, you have fought the suffering, you have fought everything, and you have never simply just bowed your knee and said, God, I need you. For the first time right now, with nobody looking, every head bowed and every eye closed, for the first time right now, you want to say, God, I need you. I'm bowing the knee of my life. Would you just slip your hand up right where you're at so I can pray for you and love you? Yes, amen, yes. Thank you, God, yes. Right now, all across the room, yes, Jesus, yes. God, yes. Thank you, yes. For the first time, God, I need you right now. Praise God, yes. You can put your hand down, yes. And right now, just to yourself, you don't even know what to say, 
Listen, this isn't a magic prayer, okay? This prayer doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Jesus saves you. But right now, you don't know what to say. You don't even know how to confess to God. Just simply say this. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yes, yes, God. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you right now with hands that were raised in this room. Oh, Spirit of God, you're moving, you're crossing the people who were in death to life, people who had never bowed the knee or bowing the knee, and they're saying, I need that Jesus. Yes, God, thank you. For those of us in the room who want to remain faithful, we're reminded of our future. That there will be no more crying, no more death. God, no more funerals, no more hospitals, no more walkers, no more canes, no more hearing aids, no more IV drips, no more trips back and forth from St. Louis. No more bad tests, only perfection. God, may that encourage us today. Give us strength in the moment. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Yes and amen. Would you stay?